It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you'll be swept off to. That's what Gandalf the Grey told Frodo Baggins at the beginning of their adventure. Have you ever felt like life is like that road? Like you've been swept away, you don't know where you're going, you don't know where to put your feet to hold on? Well, that's what we're here for today. We're here to talk about the Wildwood, where all the crazy things happen, where all the wild stuff happens, and you just don't know which direction to go. Today, I'm going to bring you some words from the Wildwood that'll help you keep your feet. How's it going, everybody? Good to see you out there in the real world. Hope you've had a fantastic week. I hope your Thanksgiving was everything you hoped it would be, and I hope you're sitting home with a nice full belly, resting with your family that you love. Well, we once again come to that time when we're going to open up the Word of God. You know, every day the news is full of stories of another celebrity or community leader accused of some misdeed. I am shocked and horrified at the sheer number of people who are accused of doing what would have been thought unimaginable even a few years ago. But now it seems we are dulled down by the fact that every day someone is doing something, some teacher, some leader, some political strong person is is just crumbling before our eyes and there's no one left to believe in. In a moment, their whole record of actions and deeds and successes can be wiped out, overshadowed by a weak moment or an ill-conceived activity. How many great Hollywood celebrities does the light shine on them and we no longer see the acting ability, the singing ability, we no longer see the talent that first drew us to them and all we see is a shattered, broken person dealing with the same types of things we see around us every day. Once it comes to light, people begin to ask the question, man, what stinks? What's going on? How can all of this be happening to these people that we thought had everything a person could want? It's kind of like what happened with Solomon. Solomon had everything a person could imagine. More wealth, more success, more fame, people coming to him for his God-given wisdom. And yet he was making the simplest choices, things that in his society, in his day, were deemed normal Ordinary political maneuvers, such as marrying so many women from so many other countries, building political alliances. But you know what? Still, someone in Israel at that time had to say, something stinks. How could this be so true? And a family or community is thrown into disarray by the activities of even the king. So you know what? In his book, Moral Earthquakes and Secret Faults by O.S. Hawkins, that's a great guy. I got a chance to hear him speak in person a few years ago, a great speaker. He tells us that before every major quake, there are warning signs. There are tremors under the earth. The subtitle of that book is Protecting Yourself from Minor Moral Lapses That Lead to Major Disasters. Now that subtitle says it all. Before a building collapses, 
cracks appear, especially in the foundation. I'm thinking about all the TV commercials where the people look up and they see a little crack on the edge of the doorway or they see a crack in the roof and they go, ah, something's changing. The foundation is settling or shifting. It's not as solid and steady as it used to be. Whenever we see those cracks in a house, in a home, in a building, we know that something is happening, that impending doom is right around the corner. What are these signs that we should look for in our own lives? Because none of us are immune to these quote-unquote minor moral lapses. And I know your mind's already racing to think about what that could be in the world. And remember, we're always going to see most repulsive in others those things that we find uncomfortable about ourselves. We can, we can lambast somebody for their bad temper, yet if we look carefully, we might find our own temper has a bit of a hair trigger. And that goes for so many other situations. Let's take a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 10 today. Open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. We are almost at the end, people. We are almost at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. I've been talking to my scholars, my experts, my, my people that I go to, and we're thinking that it might be time for a journey through the book of John, through the gospel of John. We're coming up on Christmas. We're coming up on the celebration of the birth of our Savior, and it's time to go back and revisit the story that changed the world. The coming of the babe in Bethlehem whose birth would unseat the powers of the earth. So let's see what Solomon tells us here in Ecclesiastes 10. Now many people think today that there is nothing wrong with exploring, I'm going to put that word in quotation marks, exploring those things that previous generations avoided. Things that we would never mention, never talk about. Things that we were ashamed of in the past. Now it seems like all of these things are meant to be explored and looked at and questioned and, uh, and re-examined. Things that we would never have accepted in the 1960s or 70s. Even things we would have been worried about in the 90s and the early 2000s now seems to be commonplace. These kids that we see in American colleges today, they were born after 9-11. They were born after the attack on the Twin Towers. Their world looks nothing like the world that many of us grew up in. And so maybe that's why things that were taboo then are no longer that way now. So if we're looking here at what he's talking about, these, um, these changes, Solomon sees four signs of impending loss. I believe that Solomon sees these four signs in his own life, in the mistakes that he's made and the choices that he's made, and he sees the, the ramifications of those choices in the lives that will be lived out after he is gone. Remember, he already knows the kingdom will be lost. He knows that his son will not be the king of the United Kingdom of Israel. He will no longer run over all 12 tribes. So something is going to change, and maybe this is what's coloring Solomon's impression of the world. He sees the cost of this type of loose thinking or loose behavior. Now, the first thing he's going to talk about right here in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 1, the first way of looking at our lives is this. Oh, I'm not going to worry. It's just a little problem. 
It's just a little problem. Ecclesiastes 10, 10 verse 1. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil ferment and stink. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. What's he talking about right there? What he's talking about is simple. When you would make perfume in the old days, you would bring together your spices, your oils. You would let them sit together. You would let them coalesce, become part of each other. If a fly were to die and fall into that ointment and be unseen, its deterioration would add a foul stench to that very expensive and that very handmade perfume. And that's exactly what happens in a person's life. A little folly. A little misjudgment, a little ill-spoken statement can outweigh a whole lifetime of wisdom and honor. We've seen many people who have done great things, great community service. They have been part of important events, and then they make a choice. They go somewhere they shouldn't be. They do something or take part in something that they should have stayed far away from. And what happens is once it comes to light, their life is over. Look at verse 2. A wise man's heart goes to the right, to the right direction, and that is in the service of God. But a fool's heart goes to the left. The left was always seen as a mistake. It was always seen as traveling away from what was appropriate. Even when the fool walks along the road, his heart lacks sense, and he shows everyone he is a fool. When you're traveling through your life, when you're going through, uh, I've seen this with people in Hollywood especially, um, musicians too, that they will be asked a question. And in a moment, they will fire off an answer and you can see in their face that right when they give that answer, that true response that really does reflect what they think, they realize that they have shot themselves in the foot. They realize they have crossed the line. And we've seen that lately with how people talk about our taboo subjects of this generation. Well, how do you feel about X or Y or Z? How do you feel about this legislation or that legislation? Do you think the Bible really says there's only one way to heaven? Is there only one appropriate lifestyle for the believing Christian? And right there at that moment, you are caught between the truth and a lie. You can lie and become socially acceptable. You can tell the truth and risk immediate rejection. We've seen a lot of people speak the truth even just wanting to be honest, and it has cost them friends, it's cost them positions, it's cost them uh, social activities or, or opportunities in the world, and that's what begins to happen. So even when the fool walks along the road, his heart lacks sense, and he shows everyone he is a fool. If the ruler's anger rises against you, don't leave your place, for calmness puts great offense to rest. Think about this. In those days, the king could be walking down the, the, the halls of the palace and you could say the wrong thing or you could sneeze or you could be standing in the wrong place. You maybe didn't see the king coming and you forgot to bow low to the ground and the king's anger could be inflamed. Now, if you stood your ground, if you were solid in what you were doing, the king might overlook it. He might let it go past. But if you run away or try and escape, he will take that as an admission of cowardice and guilt, and he might be even harsher with you than he normally would have been. That's the reference that was being made here by Solomon. Now consider this, Nehemiah 13, 
25 through 27. I've been told so many times that you guys out there appreciate when I give you a, another point of reference where you can see the same idea, the same thing said, but you can see it in a slightly different context and it brings a little more fullness to the things that we talk about. Nehemiah 13, 25 through 27. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not King Solomon, here's our writer right here, did not King Solomon of Israel sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, I hate that word, because it means you did the right thing, and then you did the wrong thing. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? What's going on here? What's he talking about? In the days of Nehemiah, when he returned from captivity in Babylon, he goes back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, which had been destroyed after, after um, Nebuchadnezzar sent uh, General Nebuzaradan to destroy the walls of Jerusalem, and he had taken the, way peop the people away in captivity. Whew. Yeah, say that, man. Say that 10 times fast. So Nebuchadnezzar had sent General Nebuzaradan to tear down the walls and take the people into captivity. They'd been in captivity seven years. Nehemiah comes back and the people did the one thing that Moses told them, don't you ever do. Don't marry the women of foreign nations. Is this because you can't have different people marrying each other? Can an African-American person marry a white person or marry an Asian person or marry some other type of people? That's fine. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about one faith marrying another. Now, you talk about things that will make you unpopular, make your friends unhappy, make you the target of accusations. But I tell you upon the word of God, and you just read it right here in Nehemiah, the one who puts their faith in Yahweh God, in Jesus Christ, the Son of Yahweh, in our Savior, when you put your faith in that Savior, you cannot bring into your life, bring into a position of power and influence, someone who does not believe in in God. If you do just like Solomon, you will start to build temples for those wives. You'll build sacrificial places for all these false and foreign gods because you want to keep your wife or wives, in his case, happy. And when you do that, you commit a great affront to God because one of the greatest sins in all of the Old Testament is the sin of idolatry, of exchanging the true God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for the gods of any other nations. And this was an affront. This happens in the church today. Right now in the church today, we believe all roads lead to heaven. All roads are good. All gods are just same God by a different name. And I've heard that so many times. And I start to wonder, have you ever read the Old Testament? 
Have you ever read Ecclesiastes and see what it did to Solomon? Have you ever read Nehemiah and see the outrage he had at these leaders who had brought for themselves wives who worshipped foreign gods, other gods, and brought the worship of those gods into the household of Israel and contaminated it? It's a choice you make. You make the choice to marry someone who does not honor your God, and yet you allow them to bring into that relationship all of these other things that they worship or adore or idolize or whatever. So you see, that's the whole thing. That's the fly in the perfumer's oil. You may have a great relationship with God and you get involved with people who are not Christians, who believe in non-Christian ideas, non-Christian activities. And when you do so, you do so knowing that you are putting dead flies in the ointment of your sacrifice to God. Because sooner or later, you're going to start to ask the question, is what the Bible says true? Is Jesus the only way? Is the Bible the only truth? And I tell you this, on first-hand account, I know people who have married non-Christians. They were good people. They were kind people. They were nice people. But I saw the faith of the Christian fade away and completely disappear under the influence of the person who was not a Christian, who was not only agnostic but antichrist, who was a person who was against the teachings of the Bible. And it's a very big problem. You may think, oh, it's a little problem. I'm, I'm this and he or she is that. No, it's a problem. And the same thing happens when you're in business. If you're in business with people who are believers, who, who have a high standard of honesty, integrity, and then suddenly you start to compromise to make them happy, to make them feel like they're more a part of things, and that compromise never stops. Trust me, once you begin to compromise, there's no end to the number of compromises you will make to make your friends happy. So the very first problem, the very first sign of impending loss is this. You really do believe it's just a little problem. It's just a difference in faith. It's just this or that. It's the difference between the wise man walking according to God's standards and the foolish person walking according to their own wisdom, their own thinking, and the advice of their friends. So it's just a little problem, right? No, it's not. Look at the second one. Oh, it's just a little careless action. Everybody's a little wild. Everybody experiments in college. Everybody is, uh, is out there trying to see what's really going on in the world, what's really happening. Hey, Eve. If you bite this piece of fruit, are you really going to die? I don't think so. What we should have said is, oh, hey, Eve, you're not going to die right now, but it's going to kill you sooner or later. See, if the, if the devil had told her the truth, she never would have bit whatever that piece of fruit was. But let's see this. Just a little careless action. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 5. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, an error proceeding from the presence of the ruler. Aha, uh -huh. now we talk about rulers, those who are in charge of the country. The fool is appointed to great heights, but the rich remain in lowly positions, rich in wisdom. I have seen slaves on horses, but princes walking on the ground like slaves. The one who digs a pit may fall into it. So if you're going to lay a trap for other people, if you're going to try and be slick and you're going to try and bamboozle people, it's going to come back to bite you. And the one who breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Yeah, let's say you try to 
Go somewhere you shouldn't be. Take a shortcut around it morally. You're trying to uh, gain more wealth for yourself. Or you're trying to uh, get access to somebody or some situation. It can bite you like a snake hidden in the wall. The one who quarries stone may be hurt by them. As you're working away and chipping away at your situation in life, you may find yourself doing damage to your own hands. By the way you do things, by the chances you take, you can harm your own life and your own physical health. The one who splits trees may be endangered by them. Now, I've cut down a lot of trees in my life. I've cut down a lot of branches. And I know this, if you are not careful... And if you do not rig that tree to fall the direction it should fall, you can cut that tree, look up 30, 40 feet, and see that tree coming right back at you if you're not careful and you don't know what you're doing. That's where the Word of God comes in. The Word of God tells us how to avoid those situations where we're going to drop trees on ourselves. And it says right here, If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen its edge, then one must exert more strength. And I also know this, if your axe is dull, you have to put this extra strength in it, you're more likely to be careless and wind up cutting yourself or cutting someone else rather than chopping down that tree. There's a reason why the Bible says iron sharpens iron. When your friends are Bible-believing people and they are holding you to a Bible-given standard, they are keeping you sharp. They're keeping you aware of the mistakes you're making. We all mess up, people. Come on. We all make mistakes. We all start drifting a little bit to the left, drifting a little bit to the right. Oh, I can do a little bit of this. I can do a little bit of that. I've heard that from so many people caught up in drugs, caught up in gambling, caught up in affairs where they thought a little flirtation was never going to hurt them. And then they wind up destroying their marriage and their family. And it happens. It happens because we are careless in our actions, careless in our words. And that's a very, very dangerous thing. So if the axe is dull and one does not sharpen its edge, then one must exert more strength. However, the advantage of wisdom is that it brings success. You may have a successful life when you follow the wisdom of God. You may not be filthy, stinking rich. You may not have all of the things that the world shows you. But remember, we found out earlier in this book of Ecclesiastes, just because you have everything does not mean you are happy. Just because you have everything that a person could want to purchase, that does not mean that you're going to have a happy life. But wisdom brings success because it brings peace with God. Verse 11, if the snake bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The snake charmer comes, he uses the flute that is shaped like a cobra's head, and he moves the flute from side to side. See, the snake actually can't hear the music. The snake is, is mesmerized by the movement of the flute. That's why it's rounded like a cobra's head. It looks like a cobra moving side to side, and the other cobra, the other snake, will start to move side to side to, to copy its movement. It's not the sound. It's the movement that draws the cobra in. But if you can't get that thing calmed down and it bites, well, then, then you've not done your job. And that's, that's a very dangerous thing. If you want to know what we're talking about, consider Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Now, this is what happened when Peter went to visit Paul 
in Antioch. He says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, that means publicly, because he stood condemned. For before certain people came from James, remember James is the half-brother of Jesus, he is the head of the church in Jerusalem. So I guess in in practical sense, James was the first uh, president of the, you know, a Jerusalem Christian Association, or he was the first pope, if you want to call him that. Uh, they came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles. Peter was sitting down talking to the Gentiles, sharing Christ with them, sharing his life with them. But when they came, these people from Jerusalem, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Why? Because a good Jew was never supposed to eat with Gentiles because they were considered unclean. They were considered unworthy of the grace and the mercy of God. So God was for the Jews, but he was not for the Gentiles. That's how they thought about it because their limited thinking was darkened by their failing to perceive that the Messiah had already come. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. Oh no, Peter's doing this. I better do this too. This happens in churches. You get somebody in a church in a position of leadership. They get caught up in a movement. What we could throw out there, the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. We could throw out there the old movement of, hey, if you're going to be a Christian guy, you got to have short hair. You got to wear a suit to church. You got to wear a tie. You got to have this and this. And they go, oh, okay, so I'm looking at so-and-so over here, and this is how he dresses, and this is how he acts. I'm going to mimic him. And that can be a very big problem if he gets off the path. I can think of many parachurch movements, churches that, I mean, movements that start outside of the church, and they have good teachings, but then there's a couple errors in what they say. Sometimes they want to say, hey, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. That's not true. You cannot prove that biblically because the Bible doesn't say that. So if you have that sort of movement going on, what that means is that you have salvation by works not salvation by faith. If you have to do something in order to be saved, that is salvation by works and that is heresy. That's not what the Bible teaches. But if one person starts to say it and that poison spreads to other people, then a whole movement could be done. Peter, when he came, he basically said, oops, I'm, I'm going to get over here and hang out with the Jews. And then all the other Jews went, oh, I better get back over here with the Jews and quit hanging out with the Gentiles. I don't want to go against Peter. It says, and the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas, whose name, by the way, means son of encouragement, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You see, that was it. That was the problem. That's why you have all this religious stuff that goes on in the world. And when you have a careless action like that, like pulling back and eating only with the Jewish people or, or hanging out only with the people from your church, or, hey, I'm not going to go bowling because brother so-and-so says that bowling is evil, so I can't go over there. And then all your friends go, wait, where did where'd that guy go? I was just getting to know him. And he was talking about how Jesus loves me. Well, I guess Jesus doesn't love me anymore because he's sure not here anymore. And that can cause a huge rift in a community. And that's a dangerous thing to have happen. So basically, what are we saying? We say basically this. 
it's just a little problem. No, it's not. It's a dangerous problem. And then we say, oh, it's just a little careless action. No, any careless action, anything that detracts from, the, from Christ, from the message of salvation, is a bad problem. And then the third thing which you see is this. It's not really that he's arrogant. It's just a little pride. What's wrong with being proud of yourself and proud of the things you do? Now, there's a difference, my friends, between pride and being proud. I am proud of my daughter and when she accomplishes great things. I am proud of my wife when she goes above and beyond the call and helps out her friends or, or makes cookies for a neighbor or, or for someone at work. I'm very proud. But my pride is in that God has given us the ability to do those things. Because in and of myself, eh, I just don't have it. I'm just not that great. Sorry to bust y'all's bubble. I am just not that great. Ecclesiastes 10, 12. The words of the mouth of a wise man are gracious. They're gracious because they're humble. They're humble because they give glory to God. But the lips of a fool consume him. The fool's words are only about himself, his own greatness, his own majesty, his own awesomeness. He's not talking about the goodness of God. He's talking about the goodness of himself. And that's very foolish. Verse 13, the beginning of the words of his mouth is folly, but in the end he is speaking in evil madness. His speaking is evil madness. And that happens. The more, the more something escalates, the more it goes on, the, the, the closer to disaster you become. Because when someone gets started by talking about something that's going on in their life, in the church, in the country, whatever, you can see how at first it's a small thing. And then it grows and grows and grows and becomes so huge, it can divide churches. It can split congregations in half because they take one little word, one little thing, and they build it to be the crux. There is nothing that can divide a church except denying who Jesus Christ is. Now, that will divide people all the time because if you cannot accept the lordship of Christ, then you'd have no, you have no business calling yourself a Christian. If you believe that Jesus is a way but not the way, you have no business calling yourself a Christian. Apart from that, we can talk. We're family. You don't always agree with family, but you always love family, and you stay true to your family. It says in verse 14, Yet the fool multiplies his words. Yeah, foolish people talk a lot. They really do. No one knows what will happen, and who can tell anyone what will happen after him? This is the pessimism of Solomon coming out again. Hey, you know, we say all this stuff. Who knows what's going to happen? Actually, God knows. And he gives us a very clear description of that throughout the Bible. The struggles of fools weary them, for they do not know how to go to the city. Now, that's a, that's a Hebrewism. To go to the city meant literally this. If a man is so foolish, he cannot walk from his home to the city, how can he possibly walk the path of God? If we do not know the basics of how to go from point A to point B, then how can we possibly follow God through the complex maze of life? We have to be able first to know how to take those simple first steps. And Paul talks about them again and again. The very simple steps of realizing your sin, repenting of your sin, calling on Christ for salvation. 
Those are the beginning steps. Once you are saved, it's about learning the words of Christ. It's about following his actions, doing what the master does, being sent in his name. Those are all the basic things. And as you know those, everything else can follow. And if you get off the track a little bit later, if you get caught up in what kind of music to listen to or what kind of clothes to wear or or what kinds of activities you can and can't go to, okay, you can go to a movie, but you can't go to a car show or whatever you want to fight about. These are just things I've heard over the centuries I've had in ministry. And um, sometimes it amazes you what people fight about. But consider this, Ephesians 4, 29. Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. See, it says the beginning words of the, of the fool is folly. It's, it's, it's stupidity. It's insanity. And it says by here, let no corrupting talk come out. Now, they used to think, oh, that just meant swear words. It does include swear words. But it also talks about negative speech. It talks about being critical of others. It talks about tearing down other people. See, when we think we're right and everybody else is wrong, our, our speech is not graceful. It's filled with judgment and it's filled with condemnation. And that is not something Paul wanted them to talk about in Ephesians. He said, yeah, only those good things that build people up, that fit the occasion, that give grace to the hearers. Saying to people, you know what, you got off the track here, but you know what, God is waiting. You're, you're, if you're the prodigal son, go back. Your dad's already coming down the road to meet you. Go home to your father. And that is the best thing we can say to people who've been caught up in the world or caught up in all this turmoil. Come home. Come home. We love you. We welcome you. And we want you to come back and resubmit yourself to Christ. And the Holy Spirit will show you how to make those corrections. Consider Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Remember now, Jesus said you're the salt of the earth. You bring flavor. You preserve life. You, you point people to the kingdom. You point people to salvation. You point them to eternal life. You're, you're that seasoning that reminds them that there is a God who loves them, that there's a God who stands for them and with them. So that's, what you, that's where we need to be. We need to be full of grace when we speak. We need to season our speech with the truth of the gospel, with the knowledge of forgiveness and mercy and grace, reminding people it's always time to come home. And the last thing, the last thing Solomon points out to us is this. If you don't, if you, if you really do think that it's just a little problem, okay, it's just a little problem. It's just a little careless action, okay, and it's just a little bit of pride. It's a little bit of arrogance, but not too much. You know what? All of this will result, all of this will result in just a little destruction. Now, that should tell you right now that I'm being cynical. I mean, I'm just a little destruction. It's just going to hurt a little bit, right? Ecclesiastes 10, 16. This is one I speak with fear and trembling in my heart because I believe these words are spoken against my country, against this great United States that I have lived in for 61 years. And I say this in the hopes that whoever hears this 
whatever country you are in, whatever place you are in, I hope you can take a look at your country and see in this the wisdom that you need to live and to point out to those around you. Woe to you, land, when your king is a youth and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, land, when your king is a son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Feasting was done to celebrate the goodness of God. It was done at the end of the day when the work was done, when everything was accomplished. They would come together and feast, draw strength, draw closer to each other to unite those, those, those people that would help to run the country, to, to bless the country. And it would happen at night, not in the day. Drunkards drink in the day. People who have no, no work, no, no, no passion, drink in the day to forget what they're doing because their hearts are burdened and sad. So it says your, your king is a youth and your princes feast in the morning, meaning they only care about themselves and not about the country that they are supposed to be serving. But if your king is the son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength, for the strengthening of their bonds, for the strengthening of themselves, and not for drunkenness. Because of laziness, the roof caves in, and because of neglect, hands the house leaks. Oh, because of neglect, hands the house leaks. So you see, if you have these neglectful hands, and you're not taking care of your house, you're not checking those cracks in the wall that we talked about other. You're not, you're not really looking and, and making sure that everything is sound. Then the leaks happen. And when the leaks happen, the water runs in. When the water runs in, it deteriorates the structure of the house. And sooner or later, you don't just have stains on the walls. You have walls that are weakened and can't stand. I was in San Francisco in the day when the earthquake came. And we felt the land shake. And I think it was 1989. And when that happened, I remember sitting there holding on to my bed, hoping for the, for the shaking to stop. And when it was done, we all ran outside of the dorm at the seminary. And, and we looked across uh, at San Francisco and it was burning. I could see the smoke rising from the city. The earthquake had started fires. It had collapsed bridges. People were dead. People were trapped. And it was a horrifying experience when you see the aftermath of an earthquake. And it took a long time to make those repairs. A long time before you felt like, okay, now, now we're back somewhere to normal. But it can happen again at any moment. Maybe there's been an earthquake in your life. Maybe you feel like you got lazy. Maybe you stopped watching carefully. Um, oftentimes, marriages fail because we stop taking care of each other. We stop checking in with each other. We stop making sure that our, our, our husbands, our wives are safe and secure, that their needs are met. That's what happens when we pay more attention to ourselves, less attention to our families. You get leaks in the house. It says this in verse 19. A feast is prepared for laughter and wine makes our lives happy and money is the answer for everything. This is him being sarcastic again because he knows and has said already this isn't true. This is not the way it really works. Verse 20. Do not curse the king even in your thoughts 
and do not curse a rich person even in your bedroom. Don't mutter about people in power, people who are successful, people who have wealth, because it says, for a bird of the sky may carry the message and a winged creature may report the matter. When you curse the boss, sooner or later the boss is going to hear it. When you curse your family, your family will hear it. When you talk bad about your friends or family, it will get back to them and you will wind up destroying those relationships. I have friends going through hard times right now. I have friends who have been betrayed, uh, stabbed in the back by family. And here's the thing. I know that what they're going through right now is hard, but I know that in the days, weeks, months, and years to come, the impact of this earthquake will go far beyond just what happens today, just what happens this week. Even after they put their lives back together, there will never be the security again that they once knew. They will never be the whole relationships that they once knew unless they come back to Christ, unless they come back to the Lord, unless they come back and forgive and put behind them and work to renew those relationships. You see, there's no such thing as just a little destruction. When I watched San Francisco burn, it was in its it was an insane picture. I'm looking at a city I've been in so many times, and there are the flames coming up down by the water, and I just you're stunned that that much damage can happen in just a few minutes. But think about the lives of the people around you. Think about the marriages that ended in just a few minutes because one person or the other decided to send a text or a picture or they decided in a, in a moment of frustration that they couldn't go on, that they didn't want to work, that they wanted the fast way out. There are reasons to get a divorce. Do not get me wrong. I am not saying you have to spend your life in a bad relationship or in a hurtful environment or in a dangerous environment. If you are in danger, run away, get out, save yourself. But a lot of times people let their feelings become eroded and damaged and sometimes those little minor tremors that we could stop at the time we let them go on and on, and ultimately, you have this massive earthquake that destroys a marriage, a family, friends. It destroys everything. That's what's happening all over our world today. We're all in that situation. You see, you go back up there, and he says, there's a proper time to celebrate, and there's a wrong time to celebrate. Think about this. Jane, um, sorry, John 9, 4 through 5. We must work the works of him who sent me. This is Jesus talking about his father. We must, we must work the works of him who sent me. While it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. You see, we can't wait to do the work of Christ. We have to do the work now while we can. I say this to everybody who's younger than me, and that's most of you. If you are younger, if you are able, do it. Volunteer at church. Be part of an outreach program. Do something to contact other people. When I was younger, I went to other countries, and that was a blessing, and that was a wonderful time. But now that I am older, I can barely get out of my chair and go to work. 
because it's the ravages of age. It just happens as you get older. Make the most of today, of this hour, of this time. Do it now while you can. And he says, we must work the works of him who sent us. Jesus sent us into the world. He said it's in Acts. He says, you will, be, you will be my disciples. You will go out there and reach the world in my name. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Wherever you are, you might be at the ends of the earth for me, but it's still your hometown. It's still your Jerusalem. Do what you can with that time. Consider also Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. I always tell people, you have to pray for the president. The president of this country, even if you don't like them, you don't like their politics, you don't like what they stand for, pray for them. He says this, therefore, whoever, res whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. It is best for us to pray for the government. Look at 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Pray for those in authority over you that it may go well with you, for as they prosper, you will prosper. As these political leaders in our country prosper, things get done, people are helped, roads are built, um, organizations rise up and, and help those who are in need. But not if we're constantly cussing and fussing and swearing at our sworn leaders. We may not have voted for them, but you can still pray for them. You can pray that God will speak to them, that God will use them. Remember this, church. Nebuchadnezzar was sent by God to judge Israel. Oh, ow. Cyrus, king of the Persians, he took over the Babylonian Empire he was sent by God into that situation to release the Jews and send them back to Jerusalem. Even ungodly people can be used by the Almighty to accomplish His purpose. So pray for those in authority that they may have wisdom, that they may do the right thing. Even if they are not aware of why they're doing it, God can still use them to do great and powerful things. We are coming up on the end of November, and we are headed to December. We are going to be going into a new year, 2024. Cannot believe it. I can't believe this year was this fast. I ask you now, don't wait for New Year's Day. Start to make some resolutions. Start to make some promises in your life. You're not going to accept a little destruction, a little hurt. A little pain. You're not going to accept pride in yourself. You're going to find the humility to, sell, to tell God, God, I, I want to do things for me, but help me do the things that are right for you. Help me be that servant. Help me be that person. We're not going to accept careless actions. I know that as, as a person who works in the public environment, sometimes people are rude. Sometimes they are cruel. Sometimes they say terrible things. And when they do, oftentimes it is very human to want to grumble under your breath at them or, or throw pitchforks with your eyes or whatever. 
and especially when you're driving down the road and people cut you off and almost hit you a dozen times a day, it's easy to blow your cool. But don't be careless. Remember, people are watching you. People are watching how you handle the pressure, how you handle the stress. They want to see if Jesus makes a difference in our lives. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but it's so frustrating. And I say, yes, it is. It is very frustrating. But we have to make that effort. We have to try. And the same thing said for that fourth point, it's not just a little problem. If there's something happening in our lives that isn't right, we need to attack it the way we attack anything else. If I have a cut, I'm going to clean it and I'm going to bandage it and I'm going to protect it while it heals. If there's something inside of me that's wrong, an attitude, if it's, if it's pride, if it's arrogance, it's, if it's resentment, if it's jealousy, whatever it is, we need to take care of that. And we start by asking God, who is the great healer, to heal those things in us that have been bruised and beaten over the years, habits that have grown to be part of us. The Bible warns us against the root of bitterness. Maybe that's where we start. We start with the root of bitterness, of resentment. And we pray that God would begin to work on those things so that we don't come to the place of Solomon. We don't come to the place where we are so far gone the kingdom will be taken out of our hands and we will never again have the hope of it in the future. My friends, I love you. I appreciate you. Wherever you are in the world, may you be safe. May God watch over you. May he keep you. May he show you how to be an agent for change in your country, in your city, in your life, and in your family. And until we see each other again in the halls of heaven, when the trumpet sounds, God bless and keep you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in today to listening to our programs. We appreciate your attention. We present this for you as a way of building up God's people, giving you hope in these dark days. They are presented to you commercial-free. We don't solicit money from any companies, Bible organizations, or churches. We put it out there because we believe wholeheartedly that the Word of God is the only hope this country or any country could have. Because we present it to you commercial free, we do ask you to search your heart. If you feel the need to support us in any way, it, it, could, be a, it could be a love offering, a gift, send me enough for a cup of coffee. I'd really appreciate it. You can send all support to Richard Stidham, S-T-I-D-H-A-M, Richard Stidham at Box 1321. Baytown, Texas, 77521, and everything you send to us will be used to keep this podcast on the air. Have a great day. God bless, and remember, keep looking up. Our salvation is drawing near. <laughs>